Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good evening, everybody. My name's Ed Cox. I am Director for People, Power and Place at the RSA, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you here this evening. As some of you will be aware, we're undertaking a season of events here at the RSA to celebrate the opening of our Enlightenment coffeehouse, Rothmel's. It's a space for all those who want to share and work together to make social change a practical reality. We're hearing from change makers and creative minds on the big social, political and economic challenges that we face and the roles for state and society in confronting these issues and leading practical change. One of the key themes of our series and an important strand of our research programme is how we tackle inequality and how we build a society and an economy that works for everyone. And today, we're launching a new prospectus as to how the RSA is going to set about this work. Since I started working at the RSA in May this year, I've made it my mission to go out and listen to the ideas and the concerns of some of the 29,000 fellows who were distributed quite literally across the globe. No other think tank has such a broad base of policy wonks. No other do tank has such a prolific network of innovators. And so it seemed natural for an organisation so deeply committed to democratic reform and community agency to put our principles into practice and to attempt to co-create the strategy that we are launching here today. Over the course of hundreds of conversations and meetings with fellows, eight participatory workshops right across the UK and a number of themed webinars involving fellows from overseas, it's been fascinating for us to crowdsource this agenda for change. We shaped our conversations around the idea that just as William Beveridge, back in the 1940s, constructed his plans for a 20th century welfare state around the notion of tackling Britain's giant evils, we would explore the relationship between state and society in 21st century Britain by asking people about the giants looming over Britain today. And it was remarkable just how much consistency there was in people's responses. Although the language varied from place to place and person to person, it was quite easy to define five clear themes. Here's an illustration setting out some of those themes. Inequality, intolerance, isolation, disempowerment, and climate change. And what perhaps was most striking was the prevalence of one word above all others, inequality. We were so struck by this, we decided to carry out a poll a public poll that was commissioned by Populous to carry out a survey of 2,000 people and test what they felt were the biggest challenges facing the nation. We gave them 10 options, including those identified by the RSA fellows, and we asked them to select three. And guess what? The top answer, chosen by 49% of all respondents, was inequality. This was very closely followed by the ageing society, Climate change came in at 35%, a particular concern for younger people in our poll. 
And given our current context, you'd be interested to know that only 33% thought that Brexit and international relations were of a particular concern. In the poll, we also asked people whether they'd be prepared to pay higher taxes to address some of these challenges. And remarkably, 41% said they would, compared to only 14% who said they wouldn't. The rest weren't sure. And if you're interested about this poll, then there's a blog which we've published today on our website which sets out some more details. So what are we going to do about these issues? In our new prospectus, we've set out what we call a change aim about how we work together to tackle inequalities and reconcile welfare with social action. And we're going to energise a number of um, political a number of uh, policy debates. We've set out a range of um, research. Oh, here we go, sorry. We've set out a range of uh, themes uh, for our research to be themed under, people, public services, power and place. And we want to have a range of policy debates as well about how much we should be paying for our public services how to drive a devolution revolution, and how to bring about deliberative democracy within mainstream British politics. Our more participatory approach to fostering 21st century enlightenment doesn't stop here today, though. We're determined to build on the ideas and the activities of fellows as we seek to tackle the giants that loom over contemporary Britain and whose equivalents can be found in almost every nation of the world. And so we're inviting you all here to get involved with our programme of work, whether it's via Twitter, via collaborative action, or via sponsoring our research programme. And it's in this spirit of collaboration that this evening, to launch our work, we've invited four remarkable individuals who are members of our PSC team as we've travelled around the country, have met on our journeys and our different listening exercises. And they're going to come and talk to us about Britain's new giants from their own perspectives and tell us about what they're doing. Sally Bonney, Nairn MacDonald, Ed Hamer and Saskia O'Hara are all ordinary people like you and me, but with remarkable stories about their local approaches to social change. But before we hear from them, it's now my great pleasure to welcome journalist and critic John Harris to host the conversation with this group of narrators. We'll hear first some reflections from John before he engages with each of our storytellers in conversation. I'll be joining the panel for a discussion um, and look forward to hearing your thoughts as well. And there'll be plenty of time for Q&A before we wrap up. So please join me in welcoming our esteemed panel, and handing over to John. Thank you, Ed. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for coming. Being in this room always fills me with a, a, a mixture of awe and trepidation. I try not to just stare at the mural above your heads. I wish I had one of those at home. Um, I write for The Guardian, as Ed said. I also uh, make films for The Guardian with the title Anywhere But Westminster, which should be sort of self-explanatory, um, in the sense that I'm a political journalist, but I don't really care about politicians very much. 
and I try not to go anywhere near uh, the Palace of Westminster if I can help it. Um, for the last sort of nine or ten years, and actually on and off ever since I've been a political journalist, what I've done is really just what journalism is. It's not that remarkable. You go to a railway station and you buy tickets somewhere and then you arrive there and you walk up and down the high street with your notepad and you ask people what it's like living there and how they feel about the future and what ought to change where they live and what they like and what they don't like. And when you do that, um, providing you don't do what broadcasters do and take a camera the size of a house and wear a suit and throw people against the wall and say, what do you think of Jeremy Corbyn then, Mr. Man? That doesn't work, in my opinion. Um, if you keep your camera small and you don't wear a suit and uh, you talk to people as if that you're interested in the details of their lives, which most of us are, uh, it tends to be the best way, really, of doing political journalism and finding out where people's understanding of politics originates and what defines it all. And so we can be talking to people for 10, 15 or 20 minutes before we ask them how they're going to vote or what they think about the European Union. The first question does tend to be, what's it like living here? And very often people haven't been asked a question like that in some time, and they're sort of interested in giving you an answer, and they engage with it. And what it also means is, you know, we're not clairvoyants, me and John Domacos, my colleague with whom I make these films, but we knew that the Labour Party wasn't going to win the 2015 election, and we knew the Scottish referendum was going to be a lot closer than some people thought. And we knew that the Leave side in the Brexit referendum were in with a very, very serious shout of winning and Remain were not doing nearly as well as some people thought. And when they sent us to America and we spent a week in Indiana, we knew that Donald Trump was a very serious contender in the American presidential elections. And the reason for that is that journalism works. It's all right to have a notepad and ask people about their lives and where they live and all of that stuff. Um, now... Um, when the RSA contacted me and explained the idea of predicating its new public service prospectus in the idea of a new five giants to sort of update the five giants that were coined by William Beveridge all that time ago, I straight away knew where that essential idea was coming from. Um, because self-evidently, there is still a lot of squalor, ignorance, idleness and want, Beveridge's five giants around, there's a lot of disease as well, he's fifth. Um, you only need to look at the huge differences in life expectancy um, between particular communities. It is said, I think, if you travel down the central line is the one people always talk about. I think if you travel from Liverpool Street into the east of London, you start losing whole decades in average life expectancy. So you only have to think about those things to know that disease, which sounds like a very dramatic word, but it's still there and it's still something that sits at the heart a lot of of a lot of what's wrong with our country. But these new giants, I think, speak to the moment where we are now, this very, very strange, uncertain time in our national history where irrespective of which way you voted in whichever referendum you had in your country recently, and God knows we've had a fair few, and with elections to match, you will acknowledge that we, all of us, I think, are united by a, a, a great deal of sort of mystery and bafflement about the future, where the country's headed. But actually, you still find a, a surprising amount of consensus, perhaps reflected in the polling that Ed was talking about, about what's wrong. In its, in its own funny way, that's what sort of gives me hope, that I can go on an anti-Brexit march, as a journalist, I hasten to add. Right? 
uh, and talk to people about what's wrong with the country. And a lot of the replies are very similar to what people say in what you might think of as sort of hardcore leave areas. So I think there is a degree of agreement about where we've gone wrong. We tend to fall out about how to put it right. Anyway, the five giants that the RSA really found people talking about as people from the RSA went around the country, uh, I think are very striking and very vivid and do cut to the heart of where we are. Inequality in terms of wealth and income and, op and opportunity, um, I think is arguably the defining feature of a lot of supposedly advanced capitalist societies, particularly given the turn those societies, or many of them, uh, have taken since the 1980s towards individualism, free markets, shrinking orthodox public provision of services, and so on. Clearly, inequality also separates places and regions. And inequality really is a kind of big abstract word very often that sits on top of something that we don't talk about nearly enough in this country, and we haven't since it happened, which is deindustrialization. Deindustrialization hit large swathes of this country like a hammer. And it's very, very strange, actually, in my opinion, that it's only really since the Brexit referendum that we've started having a conversation about it. Um, when you have a certain set of expectations about your life and how it's lived, and then in very short order they're taken away, it's going to have very, very dramatic political and social effects. And I think we saw a lot of those recently. The other thing we probably don't talk about nearly enough is, uh, is the inequality reflected in racism and not overt, outrageous Tommy Robinson-style racism. The Guardian this week, some of you may have seen, is running a story, really, about latent sort of racist bias that people, when they're engaging in it, might not even know they're doing. Whereby, if you're someone of colour, you're more likely to be ejected from a restaurant or turned down for a short-term let on a home. Or if you try and book an Airbnb apartment, you might find that your surname puts you in the wrong place and all that stuff. That's another kind of axis of inequality that I think needs looking at. Isolation is very, very overlooked. I was, I was really impressed to see this among the RSA's new five giants. Loneliness, we probably all know, is a huge problem. But it has an overlooked and deeply political aspect. There was a by-election in Sleaford in Lincolnshire about a year and a half, two years ago. Um, it's an area that voted he very heavily to leave the European Union. And John and I went up there to make a film. And we met a woman on a kind of new Barrett-type estate. It was not an unpleasant place to live at all. And um, she said she'd, she was a Guardian reader who'd voted Brexit. And you don't meet many of those. That's when you have to, you know, you really say, stop, okay, have you got 10 minutes? I really need to talk to you about this. And um, she said she voted Brexit because things weren't how they used to be, which you hear a lot, and, you know, people who live in cities can be a little bit sneery about hearing stuff like that. And I said to her, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, I can go three or four days without talking to anybody. Now, I don't, I'm not sure leaving the European Union is going to make her life fantastically more entertaining, and that there's going to be loads of people suddenly piling around her house, but I kind of get why that was a central part of the frustration and anger and sadness, sadness in politics is an overlooked quality that she was sort of venting by voting the way that she did. I mentioned racism earlier, which comes into, sort of crosses the, the categories of inequality and intolerance. Intolerance, we all know, is an in, inescapable part of most societies, and we always have to be very vigilant about it. Um, a lot of work's been done recently, probably because of um, the fact that... Uh, proportion, although I would argue a relatively small part of the vote 
for Brexit was down to a sort of small, nasty minority of people who probably will always be uh, bigoted and nasty, whatever the surrounding circumstances. But we all know, and if history teaches us anything, it's that bigotry and racism and intolerance go up when things get uh, economically difficult because one of the unfortunate aspects of human beings is if they feel scared, they tend to lash out. They tend to blame entirely the wrong people, or some of them do anyway, for their predicament. And if you start to have a conversation that really amounts to where's my chunk of the rock, very, very base human emotions of inequality, of uh, jealousy and envy and all that start to come in, and a lot of those sit at the heart of, uh, of intolerance and bigotry and all those things. And I think the fact we're having a conversation about this in this country now, 10 years after the crash, after 30 years in which some of the most basic aspects of public provision have been hacked back, I don't think that's a coincidence. The other thing I notice a lot traveling around the country, uh, talking to people about where they live and how, how they feel about politics, is another one of the RSA's new, new giants, disempowerment, which is sort of synonymous uh, in the material by the RSA that I've read with a sort of sense of apathy. I have met places in which Choices have clearly been made that have had a very damaging effect on those places. Things as basic as uh, bins not being emptied anymore, right? And things as gravely serious as schools running out of money. I mean, that's the kind of spectrum from one to the other. And then you ask people how they feel about it, and some people, and I don't blame them for thinking this, they think it's like the weather. They say, well, it's just what happens, isn't it? Because actually it's been happening for about a decade now. If you look back to the genesis of austerity before the, government, uh, uh, the coalition government came in in 2010, local government was starting to cut back services. So it's been so long, it does feel to a lot of people like the weather. I think people also feel a very understandable disconnection from the rituals of politics and the way that the media reports politics. The fact that the person telling them about politics on telly, allegedly from an objective position, looks like a politician. And seems quite strange. I do think it's very strange to hang around outside Downing Street at 10 o'clock at night when everyone's gone home with live written in the bottom of the screen. I don't know what you're doing there. <laughs> I, I don't think Laura Kunzberg knows either, but you'd have to ask her. Anyway, this question of the environment was framed very much in terms of climate change, which clearly is a huge crisis which hangs over everything that we're talking about. But there are other, other aspects of the environment as well. Pollution, air pollution, we know is a huge issue which runs sometimes along this axis of inequality in the sense that rich folks can afford to live in nice parts of the country where the air is very clean and you tend to find in urban areas increasingly that it's not. I also think the simple quality of people's environment is often overlooked in terms of how it affects their view of the world. Before austerity really, really turned toxic and awful when very basic services started getting cut, getting cut back, and I'm talking about back in 2009, 2010, the first sort of manifestation of austerity that I saw was... Uh, refuse collection budgets being cut back and park maintenance budgets being cut back. Uh, the Mail on Sunday, bless it, has now got a campaign about saving our parks, which is very nice, but they don't mention the fact that councils have cut the money. It's like it just sort of happens. Some aliens came down and wrecked the park. Well, that's not kind of what occurred. Um, if you do that to places, you get a sort of what I would call ambient austerity. And actually, in a very insidious way, it begins to very, very seriously affect people's levels of aspiration, the idea of what they can aim for, and, and their sort of basic goodwill, the extent to which they're prepared to engage with their fellow human being. Because what's the point if every time you set foot outside your house you see rubbish piled in the streets and mattresses in people's front gardens, and when you take your child out on a Sunday to the park, the swing's broken? Um, I think that 
is sort of neglected as an area of discussion. Another aspect of this is boarded-up shops, which I know is a cliche, but there's a reason people care about boarded-up shops and the state of their town centres, because they're central to how they think about themselves and their lives. Anyway, to conclude, since the referendum, the Brexit referendum, and indeed since the Scottish independence referendum, which we'll talk about later, I'm sure, um, there has been a sort of awakening of interest in places that politics and the media didn't really bother with for many years. And you hear this uh, rather condescending expression, the left behind, which you've probably all heard. In point of fact, I don't believe in the left behind, A, because it's condescending, and B, because if you go to a lot of the places that I'm talking about, people are living very, very modern lives. If you work on a zero-hours contract in an Amazon fulfillment centre, in an area that used to have a coal mine or a steelworks, that's a very modern lifestyle you're living. It's much more modern than mine. And it doesn't seem to me that you've been left behind. It seems to me that you're being pulled into the future at speed, and it's not very nice. That's a very, very different thing. The other thing that's happened is uh, people talking cliches, politicians and, and some media people talking cliches, quite condescending cliches, about a lot of the things that we're talking about here, these giants of inequality and uh, poverty and uh, imbalances of power and all that. And they resort to awful, awful sweeping cliches. They talk about, there was a, an article in the New Statesman last week said that whole swathes of Britain were now poverty-stricken wastelands. There's an example. Uh, another example is the idea that places are without hope, that there's nobody there on the ground trying to make those places better, turn people's lives around, do things that don't require the permission of the state, just get on with things. This idea that everybody is just walking around staring at the ground or shutting themselves away. In my experience, there's nowhere in the country that's like that. Even the most deprived, disadvantaged places I've been, uh, that picture simply doesn't apply. If you're not careful, that picture also then begins to feed into this idea that everyone's just got to sit and wait for some benign government to come along, like it did after the Second World War. And that was a very benign government. It was a different age. It was a much more deferential age in which people did have the idea that you would capture the state and you would pull these levers like you had in railway signal boxes and everything would align correctly. And lo and behold, and this happened at the time, no question, the National Health Service and mass public housing and all that would come along. And a great deal of these ills were sorted out. We don't really live in a world like that anymore. People are networked and connected. They have a much greater sense of possibility that can be right in front of them if they work together. And if you're going to make serious change, government, the state, whether local or national, is absolutely central to that, but they cannot do things to people anymore. They have to do things with them, and in the end, they have to ensure that people in places they want to help lead any process of change. We don't live in a world anymore where the man from the ministry comes with a clipboard and says, everybody line up and I'll tell you what to do. Which is why I think tonight was such a brilliant event and the RSA's Prospectus for Public Services, which is built on that essential realisation, is such a brilliant document. So I'm going to introduce once again the four people who are going to lead tonight in that spirit, uh, and then we'll have a chat. So uh, we are joined tonight by Sally Bonney, the founder of Inspire Women Oldham, Nairn MacDonald from Kilwinning Community Council in North Ayrshire in Scotland, Saskia O'Hara, who's a housing campaigner from Focus E15, and Ed Hamer, who specialises in community-supported architecture and has been responsible for the formation of a Land Workers Alliance in Devon. We cover all bases, I would argue, in this conversation about how to turn things around. So please join me in welcoming them, and then we'll have a conversation. Right, Sally, tell everybody here about Inspire Women Oldham, sort of how it started and what it's there to do. 
What um, what I'd like to do first, if oh, you I may, got a film first. I brought a film, John. Um, it's two minutes, so it's kind of like a flash of um, of in of inspire. But what I wanted um, to try and do was just to bring the spirit of inspire. It wasn't possible to put all of these incredible women on a train um, from Oldham. Um, you would have had a room full of Mancunians, which I don't know what that would have been like. Maybe Annika, actually, John. Um, so I'd I like... Liked you would have liked that. Okay. Maybe next time, yeah. no, with a pink wig. I'll tell you about the pink wig later. I thought that was like a comfort blanket. Okay, right. Oh, no. No, I actually bought yeah, this for Ed. The first time I met Ed, I had a pink wig on, and I <laughs> did threaten that he would be wearing it Okay, tonight, I'll ask you the pink so. wig question after the okay. film, shall I? So if we can show the film... Okay, QVT, please. Thank you. Now, this represents a typical woman coming to inspire. They might start off tense, but with support and stretching, they can reach a long way. I would have never imagined, after months of support, kindness and caring from all the other women here, I can now tell you I'm drug-free, have work and a second chance in life. I felt so supported and it was about four weeks later I went back to my counsellor and said I don't need you anymore. Because I've got Inspire and I don't need my medication. I was isolated, depressed, had anxiety, no confidence, no hope. Inspire has helped me rediscover my voice. Now I am seen and heard. And it was here I met Lynn and she was so welcoming and caring that I actually felt safe. Who caught me and took care of my heart with their love. Sorry. <laughs> you. It's her fault. <laughs> Each of these women. <laughs> Sorry, Ashley. Oh, it's my coping mechanism. I found that there are a lot of women like myself that I'm not alone. Inspired women is worth getting out of bed for, no matter how I feel. I think there should be more services and centres like this for women. It's here where we can change our vulnerabilities into strengths. Trusting in myself more and happily accepting help for a change. <laughs> and now I'm an associate gifting my time and wanting to help other women and I want to empower other women so they too can have a voice. It's a light to see more choices of the services they use and to be involved in designing them. The way for women might see it because I was so tired when I started here. Now see me, I can come out the confidence, I can speak in confidence. I see some women come here. They come here, they are so depressed, they cried. After one week, when you see them, oh. <laughs> <laughs> that is what the inspiring women are doing to every woman that comes here. They change their lives. Okay, I get it. Yeah. I do. Uh, but by way of 
sort of fleshing it out a little bit more. Just tell me how it started, first of all, how Inspire Women Oldham started, and if you have got a sort of essential ethos, you know, a, a kind of aim, right? What is it, and how is it reflected in what you do? Okay, um, Inspire has been um, a 10-year journey. I, um, I had an idea after working many years, um, kind of supporting the development of policies and strategies and ways of, of engagement that actually could we, with some, a different kind of support, actually enable the very women that were being labelled as disadvantaged, as offenders, as drug users, as abused, could they actually develop and run a women's centre themselves? So for many years, I kind of went around like um, a travelling saleswoman with a diagram, with an idea, with, with a theory. And um, my own background, I'm a social entrepreneur, so I'm used to taking risks. Um, but nobody would, would support it. So What did they say when they were turning you down? Um, it's risky. It's too risky. You know, no staffing model, no hierarchy. Who's going to be in charge then? So this was about more developing and creating a cooperative. And what I've seen over the years, because there is a story there, we don't have much time tonight, but I think that the story's about if you have an idea and you believe in it enough, you actually need to speak to the right people, you know? And for many, many years, I was knocking on the wrong doors, yeah? So who made, the, who made the difference? At what point did you reach the watershed moment when somebody in the right position was interested? The women. There wasn't someone in a position of power. The women. The women. Because the women were always the driver to keep things going. If you keep knocking on a door and they say no because they want you to change that model. I was sick of describing women as disadvantaged. I didn't want to do that. If you look at the whole kind of funding landscape, I have to describe women in a negative way, not in a strength-based way. Then I have to say what I'm going to do, and I have to do that quite quickly. You know, some of the women that I've been working with, it's five or six years. A lot of people out there would say that's not a great result. It is a great result. In, so I'm going to do exactly what you just told me not to. <laughs> Can you give me examples then of, you know, the one or two women who you have helped and how, how that's too top down as well, isn't it? Who've become involved in what you do yeah. and how it's changed their lives. That's a better yeah. way of putting it. Well, you, you've, you've just seen um, the, the sharp promo. So one of the women there, um, we didn't know um, because all we ask is your name. You don't have to give us any history at all because our, our belief is that if you're ready to change, change starts here. In fact, we have those words up in, um, in the centre. We didn't know that she was, um, she was a drug user. We knew her name. And what you see up there is a, a speak out event that we did. None of those women had ever spoken before. And after coming into the center, because of the way that she saw it's about women helping women, she went onto a drug program. She'd lost her children. She announced at that event, as you heard, she's drug free. She's got a little job and her Christmas wish of getting her kids back, she's actually getting her kids back. 
So no, that wasn't all about Inspire. That's obviously about other things that are supporting around the woman. But what was really important was that she made that choice. She made the decision to change herself in an environment where she's got lots of cheerleaders. The two women, Karina and Diane, who are like, honestly, they were so well behaved that day, but they're like a double act. I say they're like a Peter Kay act when they come together both incredibly lonely, isolated women. And they actually, through the centre, have, have met each other and have this friendship. They go and have Sunday lunch and, and stuff together. That's about women just coming together and doing that together without any, any kind of reinforcement on what we're going to do is ensure that X number of women are no longer going to be isolated, X number of women no longer go to the doctors or we're in this, um, I believe this kind of middle ground of um, going along a route of things being prescribed, yeah. you know, so we're like swapping one set of language for, for another. And I think it creates that othering, you know? I, I look on when we don't get support and say, well, they do this and they do that. And I'm sure they do the same, you know, with the, with the role reversal. So. Is it fair to say then that, to some extent, the sort of the, the step in people's lives changing, the first big step is that is what you offer, which is the simple business of being involved in something, perhaps being given a role and feeling that you're part of a kind of larger whole. Yeah. When people have been living in, in exactly the opposite circumstances, feeling very isolated and atomized, and if there's only them and the four walls of yeah, where they live. and being very defined, yeah. you know, as if if you go by your name and you go into a space, because that's one of the things I've seen over, over the years. We have this amazing centre, and the speed at which that change happens, because you kind of become the, the sum of the parts. So if you go into a space and you're surrounded by people who, some of the women you've seen there, absolutely life-limiting illnesses, but you wouldn't know it. They sing and, and they dance and they put on pink wigs and you can't be invisible if you put a pink wig on, you know. And I just think there was four hours of footage from that, that two minute. And some of the things that the women said, yeah. I actually said at the event, imagine if you never ever were able to say that out loud. Some of them are amazing poets, creative writers, because you're, you're being medicalised all the time. We know that women were going to the doctors an awful lot of time because they were lonely. Right. Because that was their conversation, you know? Right, you have about a minute to answer this question, I'm All afraid. Right, sorry. Just in brief, can you tell me two or three things that the, that the sort of orthodox public sector, in quote marks, might learn from what you do? I, I believe that it's about learning, um, creating a very different space, a listening space. It's about... Um, coming into a space of equality, where I, I've said this a lot recently, where I believe that the only power in that space should be the power that's generated from conversation. I don't believe that any sector at the moment can um, deal with and work out what's going on. But I, I would like to see more empowerment within the community, more say. Um, less, this is a service that we've developed, um, meeting in spaces where I saw a tweet the other week, we've met today to design what the community needs. I'd like to see less of that. 
but I don't believe that this them and us mentality works. And I, I certainly don't want to be part of that, and I know that Inspire don't either. We will return to some of that stuff. Um, but for now, please join me in thanking Sally for Thank that. You. Now, Nairn, uh, I want to ask you about Kilburn and Community Council, because you are, you are in, involved in as, as much as you possibly can, given some limitations, <laughs> yep, in so trying to sort of deliver change through, a, through some sort of structure of, I don't know whether you call it power, but some sort of organised structure. But first of all, can you just tell me a bit about North Ayrshire, where you live? Um, give, me yeah. a bit of, give me a bit of history as well. Yes, yeah, so North Ayrshire is an area in the west coast of Scotland. It has some of the richest areas in Scotland and some of the poorest areas, it's a real melding pot. some of the richest, um, so poorest? Even the best, even better than that, in, I live in a town called Kilwinnan, which is a town of about 18,000 people. In Whitehurst, which is an affluent area, it has the highest male life expectancy in Scotland, which is 92 years. If you travel less than two miles to the other side of the town, male life expectancy is 75. Wow. So you lose almost 19 years, almost 20 years just travelling from the other side of the town. And that's the, the challenges North Ayrshire faces, is it's got such wealth and the connotations and the ideas that come with that, but it's also got real pockets of deprivation and trying to balance that. And it's one of these areas, you mentioned it in your opening remarks, it's a deindustrialised area. It's been let down by almost every government since about Harold Wilson. ICI, so Nobel. It was a chemical um, yeah, so it, there would have been a time, my grandmother worked in it, my mother worked in it for a time, that everybody, if you left school at 14, you could walk into a job in ICI or down the shipyard. What do people do for work now by way of a replacement? There was never a replacement made. I mean, when Harold Wilson left, I think that sort of was marked a change in the attitude towards working class and industrial areas and poorer, poorer areas that ICI sits there, the factory's still there, but it employs something like 200 people. It used to employ tens of thousands of people. So it was never really replaced, and we were just not forgotten about, but just kind of glazed over. Now, you grew up in a place called, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Hayex. Hayex, yeah. Was that right? Yep. That's good. <laughs> um, and I know from talking to you earlier that it, it is a place, was a place, where communities, it reflects what I said earlier, that there's always hope and there's always what people call social capital, bonds that run between people, and the sense of a community pulling together. So ir irrespective of the difficult things that you've talked about, that is always there. Yeah, right? I think there's a tendency in mainstream media and especially in recent governments, and that includes the Tories at Westminster and the SNP in Scotland, that areas like the Hayeks, where it has high levels of unemployment, high levels of poverty, high levels of suicide, that these are just areas where people don't want to achieve. They don't, want, they don't have aspirations, they don't have hopes, and it's the complete opposite. It, yeah, it was one of these areas that there was poverty. It wasn't the easiest growing up. I mean, I, I, the best example is I remember moving from the Hicks and saying, oh, I can't wait to go home. It's Friday. We have a fish supper on Friday. Can't wait. And I'm like, oh, do you only have a fish supper on a Friday? And I was thinking, well, to me, that was a huge cheat. It was Friday payday with a fish supper. Um, but people were having that three and four times a week. And I think that's what people don't understand. But then in those communities, I think because people forget glaze over us and governments leave us to one side, all we can do is rely on each other. So the community spirit in places like the Hayeks and in Cowan and areas of number of issues, there's a huge community spirit and the community centre was key to that. Um, I used to remember going to my grandmother and 
there was one street, Hamilton Crescent, and if you had a problem, you went to Betty Leishman, who was my nana, and she took it to the community centre, and the councillor was there, and he got told what to do, and he went and done it, because he knew if he didn't do it, the, the residents would be at his door telling them, well, get your finger out. It's quite an efficient model of government, yeah. all told. Um, you yourself, so remind me how old you are. 23. So, uh, as regards your sort of I don't, activism is probably what, what you call it and, and the ways that it falls, because you're involved in the community council. Now, we had a conversation about this earlier on. You would like the community council to be much more powerful than it is. Yeah. Even I live in a small English town that has um, a, quite an active town council, and you were quite amazed by the sort of level of what it does compared to what you're allowed to do. So I want to ask you about that first, and then the other things you do that are specifically focused on young people. Tell me about each of those things. In turn. Yeah, so Covenant Community Council. Community councils were set up in Scotland in 1974, under a local government when we scrapped town councils. Um, and that was the last time that there was any legislation by any government on community councils. Um, so we can do, we can object to a planning application, we can object to a license application, and we can take issues to other elected members. That's it. Really? It's just a glorified planning authority? That's all it is. Um, but the problem that has is when local government in Scotland was getting bigger and bigger, in Scotland, I think the average size um, for a councillor to represent is around 46,000 people. On the continent, it's about 1,000. So we have huge... So community councils play a vital role in making sure that communities aren't ignored. But under legislation, we can easily be brushed off. So I think there's, there's a real revolution happening in Scotland. Uh, we're having a local government review, and people were saying, well, why, why do we only have 32 count, 33 councillors to cover 180,000 people in North Ayrshire? In Colwynion, we have 18,000 people and four councillors but we have 17 community councils, so we're becoming more and more vital to that conversation. Um, and in terms of young people, at the age of 15, I was elected by the young people of my area to the Scottish Youth Parliament. And that was really such a shock, because until my election in 2011, the only people who got elected to the Scottish Youth Parliament in North East were people who were already involved and were from the welfare backgrounds and were engaged. I came from the Herks. Um, people were saying, oh, well, he's not going to get elected. I didn't get, didn't get the most votes somebody else did, but I got in in the second ballot and stood and, and gave a voice to those sort of young people that are completely ignored. Even in Scotland, we have votes at 16, but young people still feel like they're not listened to. And I think the problem is we have governments of all colours. Um, and the, be the example that's most recent is the SNP government in Scotland talk about free education for young people. I didn't have to pay tuition fees, that's great. I'm from the lowest income bracket of our student loans company. I'm leaving uni with £35,500 worth of debt. My friend who's in the highest leaves with none because he didn't have to take a student loan. And my bursary went from being about three to £4,000 a year to when I left uni at the end of this year, it was 1800 So the myth that young people are more engaged is true. It's, it's, young people are more engaged in Scotland, but we're also more neglected and ignored by government because they think they can give us lollipops and that we'll shut up. Just briefly in the, in the obligatory one minute you have left, go back to Hayex and just tell me sort of one or two things, whether authored by government or a council up there or by people on the ground, that would substantially change life in Hayex for the better. I think it would just be a recognition that their voices matter. I think having people coming into these communities and saying, what, what is it that needs to happen to make your communities better? I think the problem in places like the Hayex is, they've been left to the side so long that they just don't feel like engaging anymore. And then you have people, mainstream media, they get quite snootish and go, well, they're not going to vote, they're not going to engage, what's our point in trying to help them? Well, the point is it's Thatcher years, it's the major years, it's partly the Blair years, 
that's seen these people completely turned off to politics, and it's about changing that. How does your local government area vote in the independence referendum? We voted no, um, roughly the same lines as um, the, the country, 55-45. But there were towns in, Scot in North Ayrshire that voted almost as, as close as you could get to voting yes. And it, these were mostly from the working class areas. And it's interesting because as somebody that was involved in politics, I come from the working class, I come from one of the poorest areas of North Ayrshire, reading the, the evidence, the, it was clear that independence was going to be quite disastrous for our kind of communities, the same as leave, I think. Yeah. But something had to change, and they saw that as that to be a change in it. Okay. Again, we will raise that stuff later on. So, uh, please thank Nen. <laughs> Essentially, all of these, all of this, vividly sort of illustrates the the five uh, giants we were talking about, and the conversation that often can feel very abstract, and it feels very real now. Um, Saskia, we're going to watch uh, a film about. Yeah. Focus C15 to start yes. with. Yes, yes. Indeed. That's a guardian Stand up and fight. You know, t take a chance. Be brave. Yeah. You don't have to fucking be scared of them. Basically, we've got two councillors on the camera chatting a load of shit. Where? Oh, it's on this estate that have been empty for over eight years. Um, there was a regeneration plan that fell through. Yeah? Gentrification. I'm paying two, four, nine a week rent. Private rent, yeah. right? Do you think that's affordable? No. Our then? economy doesn't work properly. What we need to do is well, change then, you know, the what, what we need to do is get you people out of fucking power and get people like us in, because it's people working yep. for the people these days. Yep. It's not you lot working for us, yep. how it's supposed to be. Yep. Yeah. It's communities working together to get the shit done. Welcome to Newham, proud host of the Olympics and the regeneration boom that has come with it. Less proud, perhaps, to have 24,000 people on its housing waiting list. When do we want housing? When do we want it now? And certainly not proud of how it has handled a campaign led by local single mothers who were issued eviction orders from a hostel called Focus E15. The women were rehoused temporarily in Newham, but were worried they would be moved out of London. When they occupied four homes on a social housing estate that the council had been depopulating for eight years, they became the faces of the London housing crisis. Um, right, so we haven't done any work for these flats, we've just given them a basic clean. This has been a bedroom. We've now got it as um, a children's playroom. Absolutely lovely. Like, it's such a shame that it's been boarded up for so long. Their campaign to raise awareness of housing issues and to return the carpenter's estate to social housing has been a lesson in local activism. One, take direct action. Two, get the community on your side. But what they're doing is the only way they're ever going to get any voice in this borough. Three, get the media interested. Four, get celebrity backing. And use it all to hold local powers to account. That was Russell Brand, wasn't it? Remember yeah. him? Yeah, I do, yeah. A person. Um, he was yeah. going to win the election, Fred Miliband, wasn't he? Yeah, it was a funny one, wasn't it? Didn't work it? out, did it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, he was presumably of help to you. Well, he was. He was quite famous then, wasn't he? Yeah, anyway, everyone, <laughs> everyone, you know, anyone that wants to get involved and help, he was another person that done that. He brought us some fruit. I remember it caused quite a sensation. I'm not going to ask you lots about Russell Brand. Tell me about, tell me about your own experience and how it reflects. Because this story is replete with 
huge questions about cities, gentrification, how London works, the failings of supposed local democracy. Mm -hmm. Tell me about your life and how it played into that stuff. So Focus 15 campaign is five years old. And it started because, I mean, we've seen some of the people there, Jasmine, Sam, and single mothers from a hostel in East London. Uh, were given, the, the hostel suffered a £40,000 funding cut. And because of that, um, people were given eviction notices. These were um, young mothers with children. Some people had eviction notices uh, that were their due dates. And they were told that um, we've got properties for you, but they're outside of London. They're in Manchester, Hastings, Birmingham. And uh, I, met, uh, I met them on the street because I was, I was the same uh, age as them. I was like early 20s and I was doing a petition on the bedroom tax and they'd handwritten a petition and they said, oh, how did I get that? Can you print one of these for me? And that's how I met them. And uh, we got together and we fought local council and we had the victory of no one being moved out and that happened after two months. And we're here five years later because, uh, well, the housing crisis and we're continuing and we're getting stronger. So what are you doing now? What's your kind of focus now? What we're doing now, uh, various. So uh, estate demolition, the Carpenter's estate, the one that we occupied, the one that you just saw, uh, three days ago, uh, the new mayor has um, taken back control of um, the tender lease on that estate because the, for, the previous mayor uh, was trying to get private companies to buy it up to demolish it. We've heard about estate demolition across the country. Well, this is one of them. Uh, we're about to hear maybe in the next couple of weeks what's actually going to happen with this estate and uh, the fight to get the hundreds of homes reopened, which still lie empty in a borough with the biggest um, homelessness rate in the whole of uh, England. Uh, we're talking about people being moved out of London. Uh, we talked about it there, social housing, not social cleansing. That's something that's very alive and happening. And is that... Um, uh, just tell me the sort of pretext for moving people out of London. I know that happens yeah. with uh, the benefit cap, for example, right? Yes, yeah, certainly. And it's also about housing waiting lists and all that stuff, Yeah, right? like the basic level of uh, how people are moved out of London is that someone is made homeless for X, Y, Z, and they turn up at the housing office, like a family turns up at the housing office. Uh, if they have young children that night, they'll be moved into temporary accommodation. That temporary accommodation will be one room. It'll have damp, it'll have... What's wrong with it? Um, they'll eventually be uh, told to come to an appointment at the housing office, and at the housing office they will be told, here's a property, it's in Tilbury, it's in Manchester, it's in Hastings. If you don't accept that property today, then you've made yourself homeless. That's right. called intentional homelessness. So that's someone across the desk saying to you and your, you with your child that you're doing this to yourself, by the way. And how far afield have people either have been or been threatened with being moved? People you have been moved Manchester, to Scotland. Have they? Yeah. Something that really propelled the campaign to continue is because we went to the housing office to try and, you know, rehouse uh, the yeah, young mothers locally. And when we were sitting there, people were being moved that day to Scotland. And that's really what propelled everyone in that room to think this is way bigger than this initial struggle. And that's why we're continuing. There's actually two last questions. Yeah. One is, there's a very striking moment in that film which was made by John Domacross, who I work with. I'd forgotten he made that film. Mm. Um, when one of the mothers yeah. at the heart of the campaign yeah. says, you think, some words to the effect of, you think you can just come in and do things to us, but it's, it's community doing it for the community. Mm. That's how it works now, mm. right? Mm. Very conscious of everything that we've been banging on about for the last half hour. Yeah. Where does that come from, do you think? Because people wouldn't have said that 20 years ago. No, it's building blocks. 
It's, it's having that issue, like being made homeless, going to see your elected representative, having that elected representative tell you, A, there's nothing that we can do about it, it's a bigger problem, it's someone else's problem. Or, as we had with the mayor that was in power at the time, he said, uh, I know who you are, I know exactly what you do, and I think it's disgusting. I'm not joking, that's what he said. He said, if you can't afford to live in Newham, you can't afford to live in Newham. And when you have that immediate abruption of what you've been told in life, that your elected representatives is supposed to stand for you when something completely unjust happens, yeah. and then you're, you're given that choice, and then you, it propels you to take direct action, and then you get victories, and then people say things like that. And then, just, just to finish, two things that need to happen in London mm. to at least ease everything that you've been talking about. Yeah. Because, you know... Uh, I, I do all right in life, but I couldn't afford to live here. No. Nah. A uh, very basic one that we talk about all the time are the amount of empty homes in London. I would get this housing crisis struggle if there wasn't empty homes, but there's empty homes, there's empty council homes. It's, it's incredible. You know, this housing crisis is a housing crisis for working class people. It's not a housing crisis for people that buy up flats because they make more money out of buying a flat than have money sitting in the bank. Uh, we're really aware of that, so open up empty homes now. Yeah, and the second thing is uh, all about empowerment, 100%. Great. That's Saskia O'Hara. It's <laughs> to note as well that there are uh, things that are reflected all across Europe. I was in Dublin a week ago, exactly the same story. It's the same story in Denmark, increasingly unbelievably. It's the same story in Germany, would you believe, yeah, where they yeah. used to think social Europe yeah. defined what happened. So that's, it's an international story as much as a national London one. Yes. Ed Hamer from Community... Your, your thing is community-supported agriculture. Yeah, Can we on, just start by talking about what community-supported agriculture is and how it works as against the standard model of agriculture? Sure. Yeah, so community-supported agriculture is quite a new model here in the UK, but it came out of Japan in the 1980s. And it's, a, it's a basically, the way of describing it easiest is it's a subscription farming model where customers sign up to support a farm for a whole season at a time, for a whole year, to buy their, financially, to buy their produce for a 12-month period. Um, and also to share the risks as well as the rewards of the farm enterprise. So farming is quite unique as an industry. There's not many industries like it where you basically start off producing something um, and you can never really be sure what you're going to be able to sell it for or you're going to be able to sell it at all at the end of the day. You're taking a risk as a farmer that what you're growing is, um, is going to reach maturity without being hit by pests, disease or drought. Uh, and secondly, that there is, there is going to be a market there to, to buy it when it comes time to harvest it. And that uncertainty is really why many farmers use fertilizers, pesticides, prophylactics, to minimise that risk and maximise the chance of being paid for all their hard work. With community-supported agriculture, what you're doing is getting your customers to support the farm regardless of the risk. Uh, and to, in a good year, our customers get a bumper harvest of the yeah. crop. Uh, in a bad year, if we get a crop loss, they share that risk um, with us as well. How many farms, how many customers? So in the UK now, when we started nearly 10 years ago, we were the 10th CSA to start in the UK, uh, but it's taken off quite quickly over the past eight, nine years, and there's now about 350 trading CSAs across the UK. Across Europe, there's about 3,500. In the States, there's a similar number. So it's, it is taking off. It's Can you zero in a bit? I wonder how many you yourself are involved with and how many customers that sort of denotes in terms of them Yeah, so on our, our farm, we've got about 400 members, essentially, across about 120 households. Um, across about a seven-mile radius, so all of our food is delivered within seven miles of the farm. And what difference in terms of sort of brass tax economics 
Because I've met tons of farmers who have a, We all know the margins are incredibly tight, Absolutely. 1 or 2% if you're lucky. Absolutely. The reason farming is such a challenging industry is because the majority of farmers are selling through multiple retailers. Through yeah, the you, all, you get squeezed by food retailers and wholesalers Absolutely. and all that. You go so the what difference does this model make to you as a farmer compared to where you might have been Sure. Well, if you, go to, years ago. if you go to the supermarket and you spend a pound on produce, on average about eight pence of that pound is going to the farmer. The rest is going to um, processors, wholesalers, retailers, and supporting all of that infrastructure that's needed to support the supermarket model. If you come to our farm and buy food from us, the entire pound comes to, our, to us personally. So we're able to invest that money in, in jobs, creating jobs in the local area, invest, investing in the local economy. And as a result, we're supporting three full-time livelihoods on just five acres of land, whereas you know, many other farms wouldn't support a, a livelihood on 100 acres. Land what do you grow? We grow over 120 different varieties of um, well, vegetables. Give us 10 <laughs> representatives. Uh, we grow kales, <laughs> about 10 different varieties of kale. We grow um, about 12 different varieties of tomatoes, heritage tomatoes. Uh, we grow everything from cauliflowers, all the brassicas, right the way through to onions, potatoes, carrots, and all of that. So we're growing a full range well, so that, of vegetables. That in itself is a different model, because agriculture... Um, it's become very specialised yeah, in recent Very years. often you get huge fields that go on, as far as the eye can see, Absolutely. in which one crop is being grown, but that's not and what that you're And that's really a symptom of, of centralisation, again, of the, com the common agricultural policy that's governed UK farming for the past 40 years, which is incentivised mechanisation, industrialisation and specialisation on farms to focus did you, on did just you vote one leave, crop. Then? Uh, did you vote leave, then? Uh, I didn't, I voted Remain, but many of the farmers uh, in our area, um, they, yeah, they're entirely dependent on farm subsidies that at the moment are delivered by the European Union. Now this has a climate change aspect, doesn't it, to get us onto the, the, the fifth of the giants? Absolutely. So agriculture globally is responsible for about 10% of greenhouse gas, gas emissions in the world. That's largely from livestock production, um, from mechanisation, from the production of fertilisers, uh, and also from the transport associated with long distance um, disjointed food models. So in, in terms of the farming we're doing, and particularly organic farming, we're an organic farm, what you're looking at is basically reducing the distance you're taking your food from the point of where it's produced to the consumer. So like I say, all of our customers are within a seven-mile seven radius. We have a very narrow carbon footprint on our farm. Uh, the other thing that you can do through organic farming is actually readdressing the, the production methods. So by using organic systems and putting more organic matter into the soil, you're actually sequestering significant amounts of carbon into the soil. And the main thing that we need to do globally is actually to reduce the amount of meat we're, we're eating because actually the meat is the, the thing that's got the largest footprint because a lot of it is dependent on cereals that are grown simply to feed the livestock, which are then used to feed people. We need to eat, eat more kale, perish the thought. <laughs> I quite like it when you put it in the oven and you make crisps. Um, <laughs> it's a hot culinary tip, folks. Can you tell me a bit to finish about the Land Workers Alliance, how you, how you got involved and, and, and what you've done? Yeah, so the Land Workers Alliance is, we're effectively a union, so we recognised about five, six years ago that there was many farmers like us around the country who were all struggling to make a living because of the many challenges that I've outlined. Uh, and we recognised that the, the union at the time representing farmers was the National Farmers Union, which represented large-scale industrial producers. And there was no one representing small-scale producers like us. So we got together and we basically, over the past four or five years, we've learned the skills and techniques um, for lobbying, basically for lobbying um, ministers uh, and parliament uh, to, to have greater recognition and representation of small-scale farmers like us who are actually doing the hard work day in the out feeding people. So we're now uh, a union, we've got over 1,500 members. Uh, we've been really instrumental over the past um, 18 months, particularly post-Brexit, because we're now drawing up a UK agricultural policy. Uh, and we're very much lobbying that agricultural policy to be, to be more rep representative of farmers like us. And how confident are you, last question, that this model can spread? 
and you can <clears throat> liberate a lot of agriculture and a lot of farmers from yeah, this very en the endless, I mean, the endless a, squeeze of the supermarket. Absolutely. Uh, essentially, consumers are increasingly asking for a greater connection and greater trust and accountability in the food chain. Uh, and it's farmers like us who know our consumers personally who are able to deliver that trust. So on a basic level, from the consumer's point of view, we represent an ideal in terms of uh, a fully trustable and accountable food supply. And, you, uh, and it is spreading with the sound of it? Absolutely, yeah. So like I say, 350 training today, we probably have another 50 or 60 in, in the pipeline. Okay, that's a nice optimistic note. I wish yeah. to pause. Ed Hamer, ladies and gentlemen. Right, Ed, we're sort of slightly over, but not horribly so. So I'm going to bring Ed back. And by way of sort of interpreting and focusing what we've heard on the question of, well, what are we going to do? Yeah. Where does government fit into this, if it fits in at all? What, give me some reflections on your part. I think my first, my first observation really is that as somebody who's worked in a think tank for, I don't know, 15 years, other think tanks before, before I came to the RSA, um, there's a kind of... Um, instinct to want to go, well, I, I know what all the policy issues are around these things. It's public service transformation, it's community politics, it's housing policy, it's an alternative to common agricultural policy. There you go, there's a report, off you go. We've sorted, we've sorted that. If I can manage to get persuade government to uh, take up that policy, then all these people's problems will be done. And um, there's, for me, something quite profoundly wrong about that model and why we're trying to do things differently with the, with the work that we're, we're setting out here, which is, um, first of all, um, these guys have got better ideas than think tanks normally have if we can just kind of somehow discuss and crystallise. That's one, one problem. Um, the second is that they're doing it already. You don't need big policy to make some of these things happen, as, as each of these people have just, just shown us. But perhaps more important, most fundamentally, is that um, behind any policy, there's a much deeper issue about empowerment, about making sure that people can actually take control of their own lives and their own futures and not expect somebody else to do it. And I think, I think that's, my, that's the kind of biggest thing that kind of cuts across all of this, is the sense of people being empowered to work alongside the state or alongside policy in order to actually make, make change happen. And that seems to me to be fundamentally uh, important. The other reflection I've got is that um, a lot of people who have sort of seen drafts of this uh, little prospectus that we've put together have said, it doesn't talk about Brexit. What, what, aren't you doing anything on Brexit? Because surely that's the hot political topic at the moment. And I kind of think they haven't got it. They haven't understood um, that uh, I'm, I'm talking here about other people in the policy world who read these kind of things. Um, and uh, for me, to some extent, this is a kind of pre-Brexit document in the sense that it tries to get to the issues that perhaps lie behind people's uh, sense of concern about our country and uh, whichever way they choose to go, that fundamentally it's about inequality and intolerance and isolation. Those were the things that, if you like, led to some of the problems we um, now face in terms of um, you know, where we're going to go as a country and how we're going to heal as a country as a result of what's going on um, right now. But I also hope that it's kind of post-Brexit as well, that however things map out in the next few weeks or months um, or even years, that somehow if we can reach to these deeper issues around inequality and intolerance and the rest of it, uh, even climate change as, as a kind of big issue that we can all get behind, that it'll take us beyond the immediate challenges that we're trying to deal with at the moment. Okay, 
Okay. I don't know whether we can have an extra five minutes and run until 20 past seven. Is that, can, is that possible or do we have to end it quarter past sharp? Because we've overrun. Is that okay? Yeah. It gives us 15 minutes for questions, which sounds all right. Right, we will now open this up for questions, points, not speeches, please. You know the drill, especially not from men. Uh, who are the ones who always say it's more of a comment than a question? <laughs> and then we all have to leave. Um, we'll take these in groups of sort of two or three and we'll bring the four panellists who you've heard from so brilliantly to answer or respond to some of your points. So, first of all, woman there and then gentleman there and we'll take one more in a minute. There's a microphone coming round. Fire away. Um, thank you so much. It's been really interesting and chimes with a lot of things I've been looking at. Ed, you said um, that you're quite a small group, your union, but you're being listened to, which means you found the right person, or what you were saying, you're knocking on the right door. So that has a lot to do with it. Um, what I find fascinating is that the elephant in the room that has been mentioned is class and deference, and it seems to me as an outsider that that's one of the biggest problems that people in ordinary communities are up against. In terms of being listened to, you mean? Yep. Right. Yeah, li listen, listening is absolutely what it's about. Great question. Gentlemen here. Thank you all for your um, stories. Uh, Sally, you mentioned um, working with some of the women five to six years, and um, you, you mentioned about success. How would you measure success? Because question. people have different ways of doing it. Do That's OK. Do and then we'll just take one more question as we get through as many as we can. Do we have, one, have we got one more question or point? There's a hand at the back. And I'll try and keep the gender ratio right because we're a bit out of kilter already. Uh, anyway, thanks. Go on. If you could uh, uh, advise your younger self, say, about five years ago, what would you tell them to have made your, your, uh, your mission easier? All great questions. So uh, in no particular order, let, I'll start with you, Sally, that question about class, which, is you, as you rightly say, is a, is a huge sort of, taboo still actually in this context isn't it that you know if you if you speak with a certain accent or you've been to a certain kind of school you get listened to and I would imagine that doesn't apply to the women at in, Inspire right so where does that sit in your in your sort of field of attention and what can be done about it I, I think I think the, the 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 class question is probably more about expectations. I mean, I, I shared um, with somebody earlier that I was told at a really young age that girls like me didn't go to university. Yeah, I went to an all-girls school. And um, that, that was something, the kind of not good enough girl that I carried around. And I think what we see time and time again is that the expectations, if you're not educated to you know, the degree that somebody thinks, well, if she has all those qualifications, then she, and I don't just mean women there because that happens to, to men too. So they don't expect that you could do, you could do something, you know, like that. And I guess that answers my younger self question um, as well, that my younger self would um, believe in me earlier because it took me a long, long time of dragging that not good enough girl. It was almost as if I expected um, it not to work out and it not to be good. And the question from over there, how do you measure success? From the women. The women define, define their, their success. There is no set time of how long your journey is, other than we say you can't hide in here. God, so this is, this is fascinating because what 
policy wonks, bless them, called public service delivery has now been, uh, as a lot of you know, the last 15, 20 years, has been so beholden to metrics, hasn't it? And the idea that you reach a certain point and there's a box that you tick and you say, right, you're done now. You're all right now. You're done you're now, right? That. Yeah. And that, that's just the absolute reverse of what you're yeah, doing. Yeah, because for a lot, I mean, uh, you know, average age, 30-ish in the centre, a lot for a lot of the women, they've spent most of their lives never feeling that they were good enough or being told that they weren't good enough. And then somebody turns around and says, can you deliver a programme for six weeks and they'll be all right? You know, I, I kind of feel I'm a pretty sorted woman, but now and again, things happen in my life that completely knock me off kilter. And if somebody says, oh, well, can we fix you in, in six weeks? I don't believe anybody needs fixing, you see. I believe that we need to empower people to have a voice and have a journey. Before we take some more questions, Saskia, I want to ask you about this question of class, because that's central to Focus E15, isn't it? I mean, that's the story, really. Yeah, certainly it's the story. Something that popped into my head uh, when you asked that question was actually, like, condescension that comes from all different angles. At that point, actually, where, like, working-class people are politicised, you actually have a battle against all these different people who are condescending you, who pity you, who think that you're vulnerable. And it's actually, like, a... It's a very powerful thing, actually. Class is actually powerful. Um, and, uh, in the sense of being empowering, you mean? It is empowering, yeah. Because you know what was empowering about our campaign? People didn't know how to handle us. I'm sure you get this as well. Working class women and their kids storming into offices. They do not know how to handle it. Something that we started, that we thought always from the start and that we learned from people that have been doing it in history is that we do not care about being respectable, right? We, we, we have... We've, we're done with it. We care about seeing results and making things happen, and Just that's kind of all part. Just quickly, Nan, you're nodding. Yeah, <laughs> um, I think class is probably, in, well, in my view, is one of the most determining factors of where you're going to go in life. If you're working, and I think the problem is, people are too shy, and we've been told for so many years that being working class isn't a good thing. Mm. That people aren't confident enough to say, well, no, I'm working class. I'm very proud that I'm working class. I'm very proud that my grandfather was a shipbuilder and he marched in Thatcher. That's my heritage. And as long as I'm on this, as I'm going to be working class, and the working class make up the vast majority of this country, and I think that's why you see us get pushed down, is because the likes of Theresa May and all the eating folk and the folk that go to eating in Oxford and Oxbridge and sitting in the cabinet, they don't like it when working class people tell them to bugger off and we'll do it ourselves. <laughs> Very good. Right, Ed, I will bring you in as the uh, first dibs in the next round of points and questions. Uh, can we have a few from women, if possible, just so this isn't an entirely blokey affair, but there's nothing wrong with men asking questions, so I'll take questions. Ah, so, man there, woman there. Fire away. Sorry, I'm not coming at you first, but you take Thank you. It was very insightful and very interesting. Um, I, I was wondering, because we've spoken very little about uh, intolerance as that being one of the giants that uh, has been mentioned. How much of a correlation is there between inequality and intolerance, and do you feel that that is um, true? And uh, if it is, are you finding that intolerance is decreasing as you are addressing the inequalities in society? Good question. Okay, and the woman there? Um, I work in television production and I'm always quite aware that when people talk about empowerment, if um, we come to make a television programme, we're normally trying to fit you into a box so that we can fit you into a nice, neat format that we can repeat. Um, so I just wondered if you could give some advice to somebody like me, if you're trying to make programmes to entertain and, and inform, how do we do it without squashing you and without making, you, making it sound like it's coming from our voice? I, I'm interested. Okay, well, this might be the last question, so if you've got a burning 
urge to ask a question, now's the time. Come on, there's got to be one more. Yes, but it's a fella. It's all right. You can't help that. You can't help it. No, my colleagues from The Guardian will understand. Go on. I've got a long history in community development, and of course everyone would see me as a bestower rather than an empowerer. But the question is, to what degree can we actually get rid of the they from our language? Okay, these are all great questions. Right, so Ed, I said I'd start with you. There's two questions I think are very relevant to you there. How do we sort of do media coverage and make TV or radio programmes about what you do that really adequately convey what you do and don't sort of objectify or misunderstand what you do? And then this other question about how we get rid of the they, so there's not you and the government or Tesco's or whoever is the problem. So I think to answer that question, I think it's really important that when um, uh, television covers agricultural issues that it's not made into a, a bucolic idyll, essentially. You know, living in the countryside, farming is a hard graft industry. You know, there's mud and there's you know, dirt and there's tears often, you know, in the, in the industry. And I think it's really important that we actually cover the hard work that goes into producing the food in the country. Uh, and I think it's important that um, we communicate how that needs to be paid for by the consumer. Because I think consumers for too long have treated food as a cheap commodity. And I think we need to reclaim food as a respectful, and agriculture as a respectful livelihood. Uh, and I think by, doing, by showing the hard work that goes into that, I think you could, you could help with that, that challenge. Uh, and just in terms of addressing the they, um, I mean, it is hard because the supermarkets now account for 72% of food sales in the UK. They dominate the food retail sector. Um, but what I think is important is that consumers recognise, again, going back to questions about inaccessibility and inequality, consumers recognise that good food doesn't have to be expensive. I think people need to recognise that by going to your local farm, by buying food directly from your local farmer, you can actually get good food at an affordable price. You know, we've got 10% of our members in our farm uh, subsidised, they get a subsidised food share, uh, and they get food at an affordable price. So I think if you can actually make good food accessible, then you actually help to overcome these issues of, of they and us. Ed, I'm told you have, your, your working life is sufficiently demanding. You have to run off and get a train back to the West Coast yeah, right do, now. Quite, yeah. So please join me in thanking Ed Hayden before you Thank you very much. And I'll come, to you, I'll come to you, Sally. That's a really interesting question, though. Is it your experience that... I mean, even if the inequality is objectively measured, so in other words, you know, it's not like you're stuffing people's pockets with money, but they feel more empowered, so there is a more kind of equal relationship between people because of what you do. As that happens, does intolerance, in your experience, go down? I think... Um, I, I believe that funding regimes and strategies have served to keep communities apart, to keep them separate. So I, I struggle with the idea of continuing to perpetuate that. Our experience of the centre is that we wanted to create a women's centre. We're the most diverse women's centre. I believe that we, we learn and understand tolerance by understanding each other. So if you've been brought up in, lots of people will know about Oldham and you know, our, our history and our background, but I believe by bringing everybody together and by learning about each other, learning about cultures and, um, and understanding that and doing things together in our centre as women, rather than defining us as that is a woman who, or that is a woman um, you know, who's part of that community or this community, we are all women. So we try really, really hard um, to make that to make that so. 
I think when you start looking at resourcing um, um, support for women, then you get back into the definition of defining, well, are you working with this community or that? We're working with women, you know? So I don't know if that answers the it question. It totally answers Sorry. the question. Yeah. Uh, Nan, the, the question about media coverage and all that, and how, how you... Because, you know, we all know about poverty porn and yep. all that stuff and Benefits Street and, you know, there's a lot of this around, you know, I mean, post-Brexit, post-referendum and all that. What's quite interesting about poverty porn is it, it looks at the minority. So I think that people in this, in this country have, through mainstream media, have the impression that if in a poorer area, you know, they're benefits scroungers, they're, they're abusing the system, and the vast majority aren't. They're, they try to bring a poverty porn... Um, um, programme to North Ayrshire and the people went on the streets and told them to bugger off and they never came back because... What, they turned up with cameras and all that and they were chased out of town? Yep. Well, no, they never even got the cameras into the town because they weren't told it. <laughs> but it's because th there's these stereotypes of what it means to be in a poor area. I think for a lot of the mainstream media, they have these images of people that abuse the benefit system. It's something like zero point something percent of people abuse the benefit system and they have this idea of people that live in poor areas are they're there because they want to be, or they're there because they, they've got no other treasure in the truth. Okay, is. I need to go, let's ask you before time runs out, but yes. just briefly, that question, Nan, just about how you take the they out. I don't think you can take the they out until, I think the they in us comes from the fact that a minority in this country take most of the decisions. It's very hard to take the they out when Jacob Rees-Mogg and Boris Johnson exactly. are hanging around. I think it, you really? need to flip it on its head, and it sounds corny, but the best example of that is that sort of for the many, make the many the people that are in charge and then that them and us flips in its head because the many are making the decisions for themselves. Saskia, to conclude... Yes. There are two questions which I think would suit a conclusion. The first one is, and God knows you've had a lot, you've had a lot of media, so there's that question about what media treatment does and how you use it, mm -hmm. or perhaps how it uses you if you're yeah. not careful. Yeah. And then secondly, this question, which I'll sort of reinterpret slightly to bring things up with your thumping clothes, no pressure, uh, is how involvement in a, in a campaign like yours changes people? and their mm -hmm. social attitudes. And perhaps there are people who arrive, like a lot of us, everybody has prejudices and mm -hmm. negative attitudes of one kind or another, and how, yeah. how that begins to alter when people are at the sharp end of things. Okay, I'll start with the, the TV, first question yeah. about media. Certainly over the five years, we've become more media savvy because we get contacted every three days by another journalist or someone, someone who wants to make this, make a film, do this, do that. I mean, really, what came into my head when you asked that question is that People at the centre of it have the ability to write and do these things and be completely centrally involved. Um, and sometimes people are just completely overlooked. Like the artistic ability of people in our campaign and wider in the community is huge. Jasmine, who you saw, writes poetry. Why should Jasmine not be the one that's like creating this material? I mean, alongside people. That's what I'd say to that. Yeah, inequality. The last question. Three weeks ago, I was standing on the street with a woman in temporary accommodation with two children who desperately needs to be moved and the first thing she said to me when we chatted was oh well x y and z are getting houses right, and we're not right. getting houses us white people aren't getting houses and they are and we have to have those conversations straight down the line and how do you do it you get people together in a room you take action together and you educate so when we have public meetings every single month we specifically have one hour of like some topic of education that tries to bring all these points together um, and, uh, and brings the st statistics out, because when you look at the facts, then you see very quickly that these, these spells, myths that are being used are 
completely untrue. So that's something that we don't shy away from at all. We are a very strong anti-racist housing campaign and we're very, very clear about that. Yeah. Also sort of gives us a closing motto, what you've just said. You get people in a room, you educate and you take action, which is the sort of ethos that's run through tonight. We've run out of time. Please join me in thanking Ed from the RSA, Saskia, Nairn and Sally. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.